praise for first scientist. She falls through sky worlds, plants squash, harvests dreams, buries ancestors. Sky woman, changing woman, spider woman, weaver of kin. You are the you first scientist. You are the first scientist. You conceive generations, birth consciousness, tend relations, sing Sing water water songs. songs. Earth Mother, you renew us every day as we struggle and labor, grieve and and release. Seed Keeper, we hold you warm in our bodies kernels of mystery and possibility, gardens of the future. Water pourer, pourer, river protector, protector, ocean navigator, navigator, I taste your salty breath, inhale your frothy wave, immerse in your emerald opacity, dance at your muddy confluence, First scientist, with breasts in the mountain, head against gray slate, hands in the roots, tendrils prostrate. Mother to matter, blood of iron ore, magnetic surrender on your temple floor. Through droughts and floods, mud and dust, grandmothers, and fourth sisters. We measure light with slanted eyes, calculate river flows with moon shadows, consecrate stone with acorn soup. Daughters marry butterflies, aunties spiral with galaxies and return to enfolded mystery to generate new worlds. It's funny, with some friends, you can say the exact moment you met them. And with others, you can't really place it. And I can't exactly place when I first met Rose von Totter Imai. But I know it was about 15 to 18 years ago, in the late 90s. It took us a while to circle around and get to know each other. I was loving what she was doing with the Native American Academy and bringing together Native knowledge holders with the philosophy and practices of David Bohm's dialogue, something I had studied deeply. We finally connected through one of my Ojibwe teachers, Tobasanaquat Canoe and Lee Nickel, and I joined one of their in-person dialogues in Santa Cruz County. 
It was love at first sight. It was as if we had known each other forever. Rose became my mentor, my spiritual mother, my friend, my auntie, and my beloved, beloved teacher. Together, we worked together through the Native American Academy on many different projects, too numerous to say. And one of the last projects we birthed together was this idea of a sculpture garden of Native science and learning. And one of the first inspirations that Rose had for this beautiful space and place and learning lodge was the idea that the first scientist was a woman, a woman planting seeds or gathering medicine. And she drew this. She was an incredible artist and she painted, first she drew it, then she painted a gorgeous image of the first scientist. And that will be our first piece for the sculpture garden commissioned by Tim Paul, who is carving it into cedar. And as we discussed and dreamed on the first scientist and the sculpture garden, giving birth to this vision and this place, this poem came to me, first scientist, as both her, Rose, and my mother were in their, approaching their mid-80s with health issues. It was very important for me to honor the legacy of women as knowers and as inspirations for our connection to the great mystery. My name is, uh, in English, is Rosita Mercedes, Tater Ran Imai. My Blackfoot name identifies me as a member of the bird tribes, a carrier of messages, sacred hawk woman. And I'm blessed and delighted to have you here in my studio where I do most of uh, my paintings and other artwork.
perched right on the edge of the bay on, Melissa, you say whose land exactly this is. Chochenyo and Karkin Ohlone. Yes. Mm-hmm. So um, each morning I have to give thanks to the original peoples of this land for allowing me to be nourished and nourish, you know, my creativity and my family. This is such an amazing a spot. Um, Thank you for welcoming us here. So, oh, yeah. dear Rose, as you know, the Native Seed Pod is dedicated to Native science, Native seeds, food sovereignty, and really ensuring the vitality and wellness of our people, our indigenous communities, well into the future, seven generations, through the power of seeds and all that a seed represents. And now I know you have worked with seeds and plants in your different gardens. You've also worked in science. So please tell us a little bit about your relationship to Native science, mm. but you could take it first by just talking about any seeds, literal or metaphorical, that you have a personal relationship with. My deepest relationships with seeds and the earth are still, although I never had the privilege of, of you know, farming it for generations, it's still corn. It's corn, it's just, Corn, um, corn has a song, and that song, it sings that song, I've heard that song, and it's not when the wind is rustling the leaves, it's when the pollen comes up through the, the golden hairs. If you walk through then, or stand on the edge and listen, you could hear the singing of the corn. And so that, that moves me. And I think that the, the deepest part of that, the part that's embedded, you know, in ourselves, uh, all of us, native and non-native, native people recognize it and are conscious. But is that, um, that song, it's a harmonic. And the field of harmony that births all of life. That's the memory that we carry uh, within ourselves. And that's where we go to when we say, I know. I don't often say I know, but when I say I know, that's where it's coming from.
The other part of it, the other deep part of it is that if we talk about native science, native women are the first scientists. And that, I say that based on the fact that it was native women who hybridized, who brought wild food and hybridized it into wild plants and hybridized it into food. So we, as native women, carry that knowledge and we're given that knowledge. We're allowed to do that. The plants allowed it, you know, the environment, the whole ecology allowed it so that we could eat. Um, so mm, that's how I feel about seeds. <laughs> beautiful, beautiful. And I know one of the things that you've inspired me and so many with is really bringing together the arts and the sciences mm -hmm. and really breaking down that artificial boundary. And in fact, one of the pieces that you have painted over in many different forms and shapes and that we have given birth to this vision of a sculpture garden of native science and learning. And one of the first pieces that you are offering for that is a sculpture of the first scientist. Right. And can you explain that form and that shape and where that came from in your imagination or your memory and, and what you see happening with this first scientist, mm -hmm. this woman? The image of uh, first scientist is a native woman, pregnant, uh, kneeling on the earth, working, working the earth, with her hands in the earth and her hair touching the ground. And um, I get the pleasure of saying, uh, here, offering it, but it came through me more than it was something that I thought of. Mm -hmm. That image is such a potent image because it speaks to uh, the ancestry. It speaks to the future. Um, it, it in, it's inclusive in that, you know, our language emerges from our, through our relationship with the earth, the sounds of the earth. I tell the story of being up in upstate Washington with a group of Western scientists uh, in, a, in a ceremonial dialogue. And as part of it, we had them go out and be on the land in silence. And it was very hard, you know, they were immersed finally. They had our experience of what it is to be in Western schools, because now they were in our following our processes and our protocols. So it was difficult. And we took them out into, down by the seashore. And one of the co-founders of the, uh, uh, the academy, Sagesh Henderson, was such a kind person. He saw one of the women scientists was just really kind of like struggling. And she was at the edge of the water. And he said, he said, just listen. He said, listen. He said, do you hear the sound? that the water makes as it touches the earth, it goes slush, slush, slush. So that's the name of the people whose land we're on, the Salish. And so, you know, and her eyes lit up and it like, oh my God, 
<laughs> oh my God, you mean it, it really is all here? Yes. Yes, my dear, yes. Santa Claus exists. It really is all here. <laughs> every bit of it, every single thing that we need to know. So um, our language comes from our relationship with the earth. I think abundance, especially as we moved into the 90s and new age and moved out of the 60s, the whole notion of being able to call in abundance and manage and manipulate abundance among people who were pretty conscious, actually, uh, became very popular. But nobody really ever talked about what abundance is. And it became linked with money, that I would have enough money to put a new bathroom on the house, to buy a new car, to eat, whatever. And all abundance became stuff. So I think now that we are living through this insanely amazing pandemic, this period of global transformation, that our thinking about the structural stuff of our lives has to include a deep exploration and understanding of what abundance truly is, that it has been perverted and distorted, that the spirit of abundance has been stripped of its song. And one of the things that I've learned primarily through a study of the great teacher she's passed now, named Carol Anthony, and her partner, Hannah Moog, uh, did a, a revisioning of the I Ching as a cosmic oracle. And their revisioning of it links so closely with um, indig the indigenous worldview. And, you know, it would also link well with David Bohm's work. Mm -hmm. But... It was through that study, which I've been working with now for maybe 25 years or so, that abundance is the abundance of patience that the earth has with humans, for instance. Um, the abundance of generosity that's really at the heart of the human spirit. You know, certainly the abundance of resources, which is the part that got perverted mm -hmm. as soon as people realized, oh, it all comes from the earth, let's sell it. And, and we've all been, you know, complicit. Complicit, yeah. We're all complicit. This is not, nobody's exempt. Mm -hmm. um, so I think that if you really understand and have the courage Perseverance, courage, discipline, courage <laughs> um, to realize where abundance uh, is birthed, where it comes from. You know, let's just say that milk does not come from the refrigerator in the store and money does not come from the bank. And if you understand the deeper harmonics of, of abundance, and again, have the courage to explore and integrate that into your life. That's, that's big medicine.
And, you know, in my very uh, little chicken-hearted way I'm doing it, I'm telling you, it's like to step away, to just really step away and say, wait a minute, you know, yes, I need resources. Uh, I'm getting older, I need this, I need... But all of these past, particularly through this transformation, this, these last two years, time after time, experience after experience, by holding to that reality, not commanding it, I certainly have no command, but recognizing it, allowing myself to suspend disbelief, working towards an understanding of it, holding steady to see, I've experienced the harmonic abundance. My needs have been met. And it's not, it's not magical. It's natural. I think that that's the, that's the biggest stumbling block. You know, we want to jazz it up. It's very natural. It's an undoing rather than a doing. Yeah, it's like peeling off. Mm -hmm. You know, you don't even have to scrub. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you just yeah. have to let go. That's right. That's right. Because it was just, you know, a TV commercial or an <laughs> ad or, I mean, all these commercial ideas that get put into our consciousness about need, need. It's not true need. It's not true. Um, it's more fear. Yeah, it's more fear. Those, those things are based on fear. If you look at all of the ads for uh, medicines, you know, if you take this, it'll save you from that. Yeah. Well, maybe. <laughs> I'm not sure about that. <laughs> yeah, in the early 90s, I was working with the eco-psychologist over here in Berkeley, and they actually, you know, were suing corporations because of the advertising to children because all, they were paying all these top-notch psychologists to um, market to children to basically say you're not enough unless you have these kinds of shoes, this kind oh, of clothes. That, that, I mean, that, so that yeah. has been a conditioning um, to the scarcity consciousness as a conditioning. The abundance consciousness that you're talking about is truly our birthright, mm -hmm. but we have forgotten. And uh, I'm so happy to hear you talk about how you've remembered and you continue to remember. It's a practice for all of us, right? I think so, and I, I also think that even the word abundance may not be the right word. Um, I, and I don't know what the right word is yet, but maybe I'll know. Mm -hmm. Maybe. <laughs> well, yes, you're fond of quoting for the garden. Um, I don't know the Cree pronunciation, but I know the Anishinaabe pronunciation. Mino Bimadziwen. Yep. And in Cree, it's wakotowin or something. Yeah. Wakotowin. 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 Yeah. Yes. And even same root. It's the abundant good life, and it's the regeneration of life. Uh, Winona Ledoux calls it continuous rebirth. Yes. Continuous rebirth. The uh, the other uh, element in there is the way in which we are all connected. Mm. It means that wealth is there for everyone and that this top-down society is obviously unsustainable and it's a figment because 
in our worldview, we recognize, we understand that all forms of life are equal. We're not whole without it. Everything. So that you can't have it both ways. If it's whole, it's whole, which means that everything has to be equal. And studying the harmony and the balance and the relationships between everything, that's all that we ever think about, mostly. I mean, Leroy Littlebear constantly says people think it's hard to be native because they hear about disease and poverty and alcoholism and genocide. And yeah, that stuff is pretty bad stuff. He said, but try thinking about every decision in its context of wholeness. And you get what is really, there's your workout. Right, that's right. That's the real work. Native Seed Pod is produced by the Cultural Conservancy with generous support by Tamil Pius Trust. To contribute to our polyculture and to find out more information, please visit us at nativeseedpod.org or nativeland.org. And you talk about harmony and harmonic. And unfortunately, like you mentioned in the 90s with the New Age movement, that word almost lost its meaning because it got so overplayed and overused in a very superficial, materialistic kind of sense. But you've also worked a lot with musicians and with jazz, and your paintings are about harmony and dissonance. Talk a little bit more about the meaning of harmony to you and and to Native traditions. God, that's hard because harmony isn't a word, it's a feeling. And I think the most important, the most important thing about harmony is understanding that it's, you know, that's ground zero for humans. That's the base 
That's the base. That's the ground. Mm. That's the that's the connector. And that the feeling of harmony is so inherent. It's in our DNA. It, it is the connection between us and to to the whole, whatever you call that. You know, I used to love to go to um, Black Baptist churches on Sunday. Oh God, that phew, yeah. those are right. These guys are rocking it. And it doesn't matter whether you believe that they believe. That's just, you know, that's irrelevant. Did you feel what they felt? Mm-hmm. Could you feel it? <laughs> and it's the natural world that provides our nourishment. And we feel it when we allow ourselves to feel it. Um, jazz, <laughs> that's... Uh, a very famous jazz musician, a lifelong friend of mine, told me once, and it was the seminal element in art for me. He said, there are no mistakes. So, you know, if this painting falls on the floor and gets a lot of dirt on it, I'll just keep painting. <laughs> and that's it. You know, so... I don't know, that's kind of, as I say, it's hard to talk about harmony. You just, you it's feel it. It's vibrational. Yeah, it's a sensual, it's a sense. Mm -hmm. it's, your, it's a sensual experience that humans must have to be healthy. To be whole. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Agreed. It reminds me too of, you know, one of the teachers that brought us together, David Bohm. And he often talked about harmony and dissonance yes. as well. Yes. And that they go together. Absolutely. And that the whole contains the fragment. And the unlimited contains the limited. Mm -hmm. And the harmonic contains the discord. Mm -hmm. And I remember when I when I grokked that. Yeah. It's a big one. It it's makes big total one. sense. Because it's balance. Right. Then it's harmonic in balance. And you have that polarity that's always dancing in that spiral with each other. There's a fellow, I don't know if he's still there, at Harvard who ran, um, ultimately, the, at the Kennedy School. He ran the leadership program there. Um, and he was also a musician. He played the oboe. And he would do a workshop. And I invited him to come out when I was at Berkeley to do a workshop for physicists. Um, so I invited him out and I said, and I want you to go full on. <laughs> Don't mess around, because I've taken this workshop with you, so I know what you can do. Mm -hmm. And in the course of the workshop, you have to not speak. There are elements where you don't speak. There are elements where you can speak, but you have to stop when you reach harmony. You know, how do you know when to shut up? <laughs> how do you know? So he was teaching dissonance. And, and you know, with people talk about healing as though healing is, um, I mean, we all want to be healed. I want to tell you that healing is everything it's cracked up to be, but mostly a lot of it hurts. And that's the dissonance. That discordant, I call that, and this is a very harsh 
description, but I'm going to stick with it. That demonic consciousness, the violence on television, the violent video games, the harshness of the Trump era, the dissonance and discord and, and you know, the fistfights on airplanes over wearing masks, all of that, all of that is like a display. You get to choose. It has its place. It is useful. This is not about holding hands and making daisy chains and skipping off into the Hollywood <laughs> sunset. I'm sorry, it just does not bear it work, work that, that way. way. It does not work that way. I'm 83 and I will tell you, it doesn't work that way. It's, you're gonna be shoveling it until you not, can't pick up a shovel. And, and that's the beauty of it because there's so much that we gain, that we contribute to the evolution of the whole. That's what our job is, is to contribute to the evolution of the whole. So all of it has its place. You know, and my job for me has been how to monitor it, step in and step out and maintain. It was what, you know, Sarah was saying. We need to be able to realize that we're held by something much larger than our differences. Much, much larger. And we get that from being together or from hearing one another and from witnessing, being full witnesses to what's going on. Yes, and you know, I've had to learn too that that friction, I see dissonance as a type of friction and it can be so uncomfortable to the point of being just so painful. And yet friction is how we make fire. It's how we make love. <laughs> that friction is a source of regeneration. And so when you're in it, like you referred to it earlier, whenever I, I see myself saying, why am I in this? I wish it would be over. The minute I see myself say, I wish it would be over, I know to step back mm -hmm. and say, no, just be with the friction and the dissonance that is here right now, showing its face to me as a gift, a growing edge. It's a growing edge. Just like in a forest, if there's no slides, there's no fire, there's no floods, it just gets overgrown. And like your garden, you have to prune it. Fire comes in and that's why fire is showing up right now. Like these mm -hmm. children are showing up. Mm -hmm. They are giving us a big message. Mother Earth is giving us a big message right now. Fire is showing up. Floods are showing up. Humans are not in charge. <laughs> we are not in charge. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> and it's time we act like first scientists and prostrate on our mother and in humility. Learn. Yeah. And learn with humility. You can't learn if we don't have that humility. So that friction, those moments of dissonance, those moments of despair, that is our growing edge that reminds us of our humility and our humanity that pops open our you know, edified self so that we can keep learning and keep growing.
that that um, that when you talk about the growing edge, when you grasp that 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 that's a reality, you're also saying this is what's going on. This is not larger than I am. These human, this human cussedness is simply human cussedness. It is not, it's certainly not greater than an animate, loving, kind universe. It's just something, it's a, the mouse that roared within, within the whole. I mean, and when you can get that, and if you can grab onto that, it keeps you from drowning. Yes. Yes. And you've got to get through that. And the only way I have any real grasp of is understanding that there's harmony in there somewhere. But Sarah reminded me that it cycles. It'll pass. It'll just keep passing. Just got to stay with it till it passes. And um, I've had reason to understand that the last couple of years. So the other thing is that dissonance and harmony are not opposites, they're complementary. So if you dispose of the, the notion of opposites in your thinking and begin to recognize relationship and complementarity, you're much closer to being able to live in the whole. Hey, on a honey, honey, hey. Hey, on a honey, honey, hey. 